What is up everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi and I am going to be your host yet again for season 18 of Pariah Nation. In collaboration with Cardiff University, we're going to be talking about all about Black History Month. It is Black History Month here in the UK. And I mean, let's get straight into my hot take for this month. And it actually refers to the month itself. I personally don't think that we need a Black History Month. Now, here's the thing. Some of you might be, you know, punching the air right now. Some of you must be nodding your head in agreement. And the rest of you must just be listening to this in absolute confusion. But I assure you, it's not what you think it is. And I think that there's a more nuance that needs to be brought to this discussion. And let's get into why I think we actually don't need Black History Month. And perhaps the one of the biggest reasons for me, if I was to go straight into this, is the PR vultures. And I tell people this all the time, black activists are under threat and one of the main threats is actually PR vultures. So who are these PR vultures, right? These are people who prioritize the image of companies or universities or any sorts of brands that are out there that are looking to associate themselves with black liberation for the just basically for cosmetic effect for them to come across to their customers as inclusive and nowadays you hear those those terms of oh decolonialism and oh diversity and inclusion and oh we're looking at being more radically inclusive and all these terms they're all all nice to hear but at the end of the day we need people to actually back these terms up with evidence you can't just say that you're going to be an inclusive company if you don't consider the element of subconscious racial bias within your application processes or maybe your entire application process in and of itself if it's a job application specifically or university application process is in and of itself subconsciously racist in the sense that it has certain stereotypes or there's certain questions that are asked in certain ways or there's certain presuppositions that it may have that you may not even notice. So this is one of the biggest issues that I actually take with Black History Month. It's a huge opportunity for PR vultures to come out and say, hey, look, we're celebrating Black History Month. We're good. Give us our cookies. Uh, give us our extra money and we'll sponsor you this and that. You give people a platform. And then for the rest of the year, it's pretty much quiet on black issues. Unless, of course, you have a situation like, for example, uh, a murder like a uh, police murder, like the one of George Floyd goes viral, even though this happens a lot of the time and in a lot of different places. If it so happens to go viral, they're automatically just going to be there and talking about it. And that's one of the main reasons why. But it's not by any means the only reason why I think we don't need Black History Month. Another reason why I think we don't need Black History Month is because there's something far better than Black History Month. And that for me is integrating Black history and not just Black history, but world history into the curriculum, not just in the UK, but all around the world and specifically the West. And I say specifically the West because a lot of history, unfortunately, due to the colonial project, has been dictated and has been shaped to fit an ethnocentric narrative that is largely centered around the West. And that leaves us with what I just said, integrating this knowledge and all of these different narratives into our curriculums. And this is something the Welsh government is looking into doing, which is exciting. But obviously we'll see if 
things go as planned. I mean, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, you shouldn't just promise things if you're not going to, you know, go through with them. So we'll we'll obviously be monitoring that. And hopefully, I mean, we can even do a podcast and just see where that's going. And I mean, that's an idea for another day. But let's look at why, for example, we might actually benefit from an integrated curriculum. And this is something that a lot of people have opposed for a number of different reasons. But I think these points will definitely deal with those contentions. So the first point that I would like to make in relation to why I feel like integrated curriculum is actually better, it comes from the fact that our histories from the global south to the global north are intrinsically linked because of something like colonialism and transatlantic slavery. So I'd argue that if you're studying countries like the UK, Germany, France in a vacuum, historical vacuum actually, yeah, and you're not looking at the international context of the activities outside of their own borders, at that specific time, then you're actually doing a disservice to that history. And when people tell me it's not irrelevant, I mean, it's, it's irrelevant, we don't need to study this, has nothing to do with us, it just doesn't make too much sense to me, especially because of colonialism. And we'll actually go into a few contributions, actually, and I've done an entire podcast uh, last year on this as well, the African contributions to world history. But a lot of people forget, you know, why we call World War One and World War Two World Wars. People just mention, you know, certain battles and they say, oh, yeah, you know, it happened in this continent, this co- that continent, that other continent. But the rest of the world was pretty peaceful, right? Not exactly. I mean, they may have been peaceful on their side, but people don't know about the African battles that were actually fought, for example, uh, in Cameroon. And they don't know about Tanzania and what happened in Tanzania when it used to be a German colony called Tanganyika at that time. They also don't know about the large number of African soldiers that fought in these wars. For example, France sent around 450,000 African soldiers to fight in the front lines against Germany. And around 200,000 African soldiers had died in those uh, on, on the front lines. And people also don't realize that minerals from the DRC were used to create the brass shells that were fired at the Battle of the Somme, one of the key battles of World War One, And... If I was to put a number on that, from what I remember, it's around 30% of those, the, bra- the, the bronze and brass that came from those shells actually came from the DRC. Another interesting fact as well, if we go into World War II, is the fact that around 100,000 Africans were sent to East Asia to actually fight the Japanese. And many of these Africans actually came from places like Ghana, Nigeria, and they were promised either freedom or they were promised bikes. And they never ended up getting any of that. And obviously that's very heartbreaking, but a lot of these people never got anything. And that's also a reality I feel like needs to be uh, mentioned. You know, these stories are just swept under the rug and we never examine them, but they have everything, anything and everything to do with countries like the UK, with Germany, France, because they sent these people to fight battles on their behalf and to fight alongside other people, while at the same time they were oppressing them in their own countries. So it's a matter of, adding that richness to our history and looking at the intersections. Another fact that I think surprises a lot of people when I mention it is about, yeah, the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. People don't often know where the uranium that was used to build those bombs came from. And if we take a closer look at the supply chain, it'll take you to two places. One in uh, the global north and one in the global south, where two-thirds of the uranium actually came from. 
So you have Canada, which is one of those sources, and it had a lower uranium content in each of the, the, the ore that was being extracted. But you also had the DRC, which in turn actually contributed around two-thirds, a whopping two-thirds of the uranium needed to build the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Having addressed that and just mentioned all that, I think it's important to realize now that if you're talking about world history, specifically World War II, leaving the DRC out of that conversation potentially could actually do disservice to that story in and of itself. Because without the DRC, I mean, questions need to be asked about whether it would have even been feasible to drop nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And even from a philosophical perspective, if you're, if you're studying philosophy, how did those countries even come to that moral conclusion that it's okay to use Africans as pawns in this scheme of world destruction, which was aimed at taking the lives of thousands of innocent people in Japan? How did they come to that moral calculation? And how did that sort of interact with philosophy? Or if you're studying international relations, or if you're studying politics, statehood, all of these subjects are able to relate with this specific matter. And there's so much to talk about from this one example. So if we actually begin to add that depth to our history and to our subjects, you might actually find more interesting conversations and more productive conversations coming out of your classrooms. Just to add on a few points or just add a few examples to the previous point, some people might be listening to this podcast and thinking, I'm a med student, I'm a law student, what do I have to do with African history? Or what do I have to do with black history at all? And I think the question is flawed. Uh, uh, just to be blatantly honest, I think the question is actually flawed. There are several ways in which the, the history of the world can be taught through these subjects, especially because you need to learn the context of these subjects. And I think that it's important to also learn the histories of subjects because it helps you understand where knowledge comes from instead of acquiescing to this idea, the subconscious idea that we've been taught since childhood, which is that essentially, you know, ancient Greece was the only uh, civilization apart from uh, what would be a whitewashed Egypt um, that gave us, you know, the, the basis of subjects like medicine. And you won't really hear anything else. I mean, that'll just be the end of the story. There'll be there'll be nothing else that's mentioned. And it's like, oh, that's where medicine came from, full stop. That's all that matters. And the rest was developed by, by Western Europeans and Americans. That's the end of the story. And maybe there was a bit that came from, you know, the Arab world, or maybe there was a bit that came from East Asia, specifically China. And that's the end of the story. But I think it's, it's far more... I mean, if you look at the actual record of history, it's far more complicated than that. And you can go as far as West Africa, specifically the Mali Empire, and within the Mali Empire, to give and go a bit more specific, the University of Sankore, one of the first universities in the world, where they were performing a sort of couching uh, surgery, I think it's called a couching method, for dealing with cataracts. And this was in the 1200s. And they're figuring out how to deal with cataracts. And there's entire files there, uh, like books and books that are talking about medicine. And that's one of the things that they used to study in the University of Timbuktu. Until today, there's around 700,000 manuscripts that we haven't decoded. So we don't know what else is in there. Another example of, I'd say, medicinal uh, contributions is Bunyoro Katara in Uganda. So this specific ethnic group was performing C-sections for a considerable amount of time before the 1800s. And like, we say this because uh, from what we know from R.W. Falcon's account of the situation, that it was well-practiced and it seemed to be something that was known well by the people there. 
And when he went there, he actually saw them performing a C-section and the baby survived and apparently the mother was also fine. And the only thing that happened was that the, the baby was slightly cut on its, its left shoulder. That was basically it. But the surgery, apart from that, was successful. They were also known to vaccinate their children. And, I mean, these things don't appear in history books, but they could also be related to medicine. If you're teaching children the history of medicine or if you're doing a history of medicine, these stories are rarely ever mentioned, even though they happened. And I think it's really important and it adds more perspective to the world around us. And it adds that element of richness, as I said, to the history uh, of the world in general. If you want to go back as well and look at, you know, mathematics, the history of mathematics, the first mathematical tools uh, in the entire world came from Africa. The Ishango bone and the Lembombo bone, they both have markings on them that represent either, in the case of the Lembombo bone, someone was trying to probably count their menstrual cycle and try to see when that next menstrual cycle was going to happen. So, so some say that that could have been the case and some say it could also have been a lunar calendar. And in the case of the Ishango bone, some people actually think that this was used to do basic arithmetic. And this is one of the first signs that we see of that happening. And it's around 20,000 years old. And the Limbombo bone is an excess of 30,000 years old. So that's based on, you know, the carbon dating that they, they were able to do. But all these different things are rarely ever mentioned. And they're rarely ever taught. So when people learn about these subjects, when they learn about the base of the subject, they only point to Western Europe and the Americas, uh, specifically the United States of America, Canada, they point to those specific regions for the development of these subjects. So there needs to be more done to actually integrate these things into the curriculum. And I'd argue that it would just make you more globally aware. And this is going to be our next point in our podcast. What do you truly lose if the educational system is supposed to be preparing you for the world out there where you have access to YouTube and you can live stream to thousands of people from thousands of locations all around the world? What do you lose from knowing more about the world? What do you lose? Absolutely nothing. And if anything, you gain quite a bit. You gain more context. You gain more experience. And you learn more about the people that are interacting with you on a daily basis. I am an international student here. And it would be amazing if some uh, people, for example, from the UK knew about my cultures. Or not necessarily my culture. They just had some level of basic awareness. Which unfortunately... <laughs> Uh, in my time here, you have the odd uh, case where some people actually are not too familiar, like, you know, with, with the basics, even the basic geography. Uh, and um, that's also another issue for another day. <laughs> but it comes into this bigger discussion of education and how we're able to make people global citizens. This is one of the best ways to do that, to teach the history of the world. And not by the history of the world, I don't just mean black history. Let's learn about Native American history. Let's learn about Polynesian history. Let's learn about the history of the aboriginals of Australia. Let's learn about the history of Eastern Asia. All these different things are going to actually make us better global citizens, I'd actually argue. And that reduce things like racial bias and that are basically based on ignorance and a lack of academic awareness. That's the second point that I'm going to bring up in this podcast. And for the third one, it has to do with interaction with black academics and also black students. I would say by learning black history and by teaching black history, especially when you have international uh, or like globalized classrooms, which is the case here at Cardiff University and in other places all around the world, you are forced to interact with black academics who likely actually study these topics. And specifically, for example, like Felix Chami is a professor in Dar es Salaam doing some current work on a, on a lost city called Raptor. And that was actually one of the 
the the furthest outposts of the Roman Empire, and it was a metropolis that focused mainly on trading tortoise shells, and some even say gold and other resources. So he's a professor, a Tanzanian professor, who's actually studying this. He's one of the leaders uh, in the academic world in terms of studying this specific field of archaeology. So you have to interact with his work and. I'd argue that if you do want to get involved with certain archaeological projects, you actually understand different ways of doing archaeology, and you're forced to interact with his work. You're forced to interact with the work of others, as I just mentioned. Other, uh, other uh, academics, for example, Eric Williams. You, when you interact with his work, you get to see how his writing style is perhaps different to other styles uh, of other people. You get to interact with people like Joseph Inikori, a Nigerian professor, and see how he writes and what informs his writing. So I'd argue that this actually creates a situation whereby you are you're forced to be diverse because you're teaching diverse narratives, and you have to interact with other people. And this actually moves us to the fourth and last point, which is actually that if you combine all of this together, what you get is a true test of diversity and inclusion. That for me is the epitome, and it should be the goal of diversity and inclusion, especially in Cardiff. Um, a very international city in and of itself, and the university is simply an extension of that. If you're looking to be more diverse and inclusive, this is one of the best ways to do it. Especially the fact that you have to interact with those other academics and also your students. Once they feel more, I'd, I'd argue that if you're teaching the history of certain students, they're going to feel more included in these classrooms. And they're going to feel like these classrooms are actually a sort of second home for them, or at least they feel like they are more open to share in these classrooms. And I think that that is perhaps the best way and the best approach to diversity and inclusion. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to try and do another episode next week, and we're going to get a few professors uh, from Cardiff University to speak on uh, different topics. As for this month, we're going to try and do a few more topics on, for example, the relationship between transatlantic slavery and uh, the Industrial Revolution. We're going to be looking at the you know myths of pre-colonial Africa. We're going to be looking at subconscious bias and racial bias here in Cardiff University. But thank you once again for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the podcast and I will see you guys next week.